Hello, welcome to podcast number three of Fascinate Pod. Today, we're in for a treat. My guest, Ellis Payson. She's a performance psychologist. We talk about elite classical musicians and athletes, the pressure that they feel and how they deal with it. And we talk about why we procrastinate, among loads of other things. She's had a really interesting and varied life and draws lessons from all of her experiences. I hope you enjoyed this one. I certainly did. Ellis Payson. Yeah, this is fun. I've, this is great. <laughs> I've, been, uh, I've been looking forward to this since we arranged it. Me too. That. Thank you very much. You've studied um, performance science, psychology, mm-hmm. coaching and mentoring, yeah. cognitive behavioural therapy, mm-hmm. neuroscience, I think in relation to decision making. Yeah. And you're currently doing your PhD. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what your PhD is in? Yeah, of course. Um, so... Well, it's finished now, so we're submitting and correcting and stuff. I I don't have the the PhD itself yet, but so at least, uh, you know, the work is done. Um, So what it was on was, um, so performance psychology, it's a PhD in performance psychology. And particularly what I did, because it hadn't been done before, was look at the culture of um, elite classical music. Because, you know, we have a lot of sports psychology. We have a lot of performance psychology in, you know, other areas. but. In classical music, there was none whatsoever. And because I came from a creative background, you know, I was sort of well-placed to, to do that. And the PhD itself looked at all the factors that influence the problems that occur in high performance in music. So they can be things like, what's the culture like? What's the, how is the culture and the training culture affecting the problems that people have? Um, how is the approach to training affecting the problems? And how can we use performance psychology from sports? And translate that accurately so that it can work in a different environment. So that's what it was really about. So sort of an in-depth look at all the latest performance psychology strategies from sports. And then doing a sort of cultural study and seeing how can we translate this to a different environment. Because one of the big problems with sports psychology and performance psychology in general is that people think we can just take it and use it in another environment. And the wheels usually come off. Okay. It's not a good idea to do this. Um, I know they try this in business. You know, they bring in military psychologists. They bring in sports psychologists. Some strategies work, but actually when you talk to the people and you see the feedback, a lot of it does not. You know, people say, well, this doesn't really apply to me having an office job or this doesn't really apply to me in the creative industry. So you do have to know what's the culture like and where are sort of these idiosyncrasies and how do we cater to that? What can we use and what can we not use? And most importantly, you know, how do we make it um, approachable and how do we make people want to engage with it? Because that's a huge thing. You know, if you have things like identity, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I had someone in business who got really, well, he, he seemed a bit offended that I used an anecdote from uh, the military world. And he said, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with the military people because I have family who are in the military. And I think that, you know, he didn't like them. And so he was quite offended by by using a strategy that or an anecdote that came from the military world. So you have to be very careful with these things. Even though it was applicable to him? Um, it was it was actually quite general. A lot of other people did find it applicable. But then he said, oh, you know, I'm sick of people from the military and the sports world coming into finance. And you're talking about these strategies. 
Um, and I can see where he was coming from because mm. in his mind, for example, um, this was actually a very good question he had. He said the sports people and the military people, they train for one big event that they're going to do. And he said in finance, we're just constantly having deadlines and presentations. And that's a really, you see, now this is something that anybody who's worked in finance would know. Um, but if you don't, that would really have, a, that's a huge problem for the uptake. So people, he, he did get a bit offended and he was absolutely right. And this is something that, you know, I was aware of, but that the strategies don't cater for because they, they really uh, assume that you're going to have tons of time to train and prepare your psychological skills for this one big presentation event. But what if you're a presenter who's got to do one on Monday, one on Tuesday, one on Thursday? You have to, everything has to change. You don't have the time. You don't have the, also they don't have the support. They don't have a physio and a therapist and a performance psychologist to support them. Yeah. You know, they're doing a hundred hour work weeks. Got so a lot of demands on their time, don't they? Exactly. So, so what did yeah. you find out in your PhD? Then? Oh, all right. So, um, this would be unique to elite classical music. So this would be a very niche within a niche. <laughs> yeah. Um, we found that it's such an isolated culture that it's been allowed to do to train people the way that they were training people in the 19th century. So very little has changed in 200 years of training, very little, and they can get away with it because there's no accountability. They're a niche within a niche, and they can just sort of, you know, keep training the way they've always trained. Lots of injury, lots of dropout, very little provision in terms of psychological skills and professional, um, you know, preparation. And the reality was that from the feedback that was coming back, a lot of people were saying, look, you know, it's very extremely challenging. It's a bit like the, the movie Whiplash. I don't know <laughs> if, if, you, if anybody has. Haven't seen you haven't seen it, but lots of people say to me, oh, you know, the, the, the stories you've been telling about uh, the conservatoire culture, you know, it's like Whiplash, isn't it? And yeah, you know, you do have conservatoires. They're very much like train, 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 and they will just tell you you're terrible and they won't really invest in the appropriate skill development. If you do have a good conservatoire, great. If you have a good teacher, great. But what was coming back was that people said, it's a, it's a matter of luck. You know, you need to get the right people who are willing to just um, you know, invest in you and develop you, but it's not a given. So the training structures that are in place are still very old-fashioned. They still rely on talent and lots and lots and lots of training and practice. And they assume that if you're strong enough, you'll make it. But the reality is that lots of very talented people drop out because of other reasons. They get injured or um, they're just... What sort of injuries might they get? Very similar to the sports world, actually. That that's one one area where um, they they do seem to get very similar. Um, so like repetitive so, strain injuries. Yeah, repetitive strain injuries, like you know people who do tons of typing. That's a very common one. The one that's a bit more unique, perhaps they see this in in, in golf and in uh, you know fine motor skills more often is focal dystonia. Very you know complex but very serious um, condition where they just cannot make the movement anymore. So if they're used to you know, always doing this with their fingers, let's say, suddenly one of the, they'll make a little jerking movement with one of the, one of the muscles and they're not able to, to control that movement anymore. So something as small, I mean, it seems very small to yeah, someone who would just... if you're a high-performance classical it's musician, then absolutely, it's, it'll kill it's, your it's, career. Yeah, it will, it will. And I've heard this from golf players as well, you know, golfing yips, for example, career-ending potentially so it's very very serious um but at the same time you know we're not really preventing it from happening because there is such an emphasis on train 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 till you drop there is no coach who looks at you while you're training you know similarly to finance you can work till you drop because there isn't anyone supervising you and saying hey 
are you really, you know, <laughs> is this sustainable what you're doing? You're left yeah. to your own devices and that's where things really derail. Um, and then the other thing that's, you know, apart from, so all these things I've now said, they're cultural issues. It's a culture of train till you drop and you'll be better. And if you're talented, you'll make it. And professionally, because this is the 21st century, a lot of the skills that they need, they don't have. So once they're out of that place and they think, all right, you know, now I really want to go and have this elite career, they've actually not been trained in how to do interviews. They don't feel ready to go and run their own businesses. They don't feel ready to promote themselves on YouTube. You know, they, so there are all these skills that did not come from train, train, train to be an elite performer. So do some of your clients that mm. you have at the moment have mm -hmm. this this issue this problem many many I, I would say in the creative world uh, it's not just the musicians I'd say the actors are also struggling with it you know actors and comedians because so much has changed uh, very recently in in the performance world thanks to you know YouTube mm. and a lot of them are actually pushing themselves to have these online businesses and they just don't know where to start so I think um, it, it does cause a lot of you know just downright depression in people because the bubble suddenly bursts you know you've worked so hard you got into the top schools it doesn't matter if you get into RADA because if you graduate and you don't know how to network properly and you don't know how to you know manage it or audition properly even if you're a phenomenal actor or actress the cracks start to show because they lack skills in one particular area and that yeah. hits you psychologically really, really hard because they've done nothing but put all their time and effort into this one thing since they were children. But then they lack certain skills yeah, in other areas. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a systemic issue. There's lots of good people in music, in the creative industry who want this change, but you would need the entire structure to, to change. And it's just so old school, you know, they're not going to change. Yeah. Is it throughout the whole... Mm -hmm throughout the whole culture like at school mm -hmm. and then in the wider world when they mm -hmm. when they move on to the organizations in the theaters yeah. and everything mm -hmm. like that is, is the problem does the problem persist over that i say it's very pervading yeah it just really pervades the culture completely yeah are you able to mitigate those issues what do you do to get around those problems the approach that i've had is um one-on-one -on -one mainly because um there have been some institutions that have been really receptive and open and who've said you know come over and do a talk but what we've clearly see is they don't want lectures they don't want talks they want just like they have their acting or their comedy or their music lessons with their teacher they want training and that's not the same thing you know someone coming in and giving you a talk is great if you're able to take some strategies and apply them autonomously mm. but what a lot of these people are going through is that they genuinely don't have even that ability to know where do I start so they need someone to follow them up and to really be there with them and to, to be there systematically. And that's a huge leap, you know. So we're still struggling with getting the people in to even speak. So let alone have, you know, systematic support for them. Um, yeah, I, I'd say that. So my approach has been one-on-one -on -one, and the issues that they present with are very different, though. So you can have somebody who's got a career-ending injury you can have people who just don't know how to manage their personal lives. That's a very common one, that they just feel so overwhelmed by the creative industry. Um, or actually also in sports, you know, once they get the endorsements, 
it's a different thing. You know, I, I remember this story um, from, from a young athlete who said, my whole life, you know, I've been working towards these medals. And now that I have my medal, nobody even talks about my sports anymore. They're talking about endorsements. They're talking about um, who the competitors are going to be. They're talking about which agent I'm going to move on to. So everything is business, business, business. And there was this one guy who apparently said, oh, uh, you'll be fine because you got great interview skills. And for an athlete who's never thought of that, that's a really shocking thing to hear because it's almost like they find it demeaning. You know, they think, I've yeah. worked so hard, you don't even think about my medal anymore, but you just say, oh, you know, you're interviewable, you look really nice, so you'll be fine. It's, it's almost this idea, isn't it, that you, you get into it for your sport or mm. for this thing, whatever it is, you know, your passion, let's say. And a lot of these people put all their time and effort into being good at the content, at you know the output the performance and then the bubble bursts and you realize you know to make this workable to make this you know into a career the content it's almost like the form is more important than the content and that's a really big shift you know having for, that you're having to go from thinking of practice 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 training 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 to who am I going to have to speak to oh I have to go to a business meeting oh I have to think of the endorsements oh I have to do presentation skills I have to you know be on YouTube I have to post one video a week or you know my following is gone so one thing that's really coming through a lot especially from people in in all performance domains is that what they think is going to be their career ends up not being their career so yeah. the thing they train in ends up being maybe 20% of what they're having to do in the long term and do you find that that's quite demoralizing for people? It's, I, in my experience, I find it very, yeah, they seem to be finding it extremely demoralizing. And I think the difficulty is also there is, for a lot of them, there is no choice. So, I mean, if you take the example of sports where you have to retire early, at least they know, they know, all right, you know, I'm not going to be doing this until I'm 30 or 35. So there is a bit of a culture of you'll do this until you're 20, 25 tops, and then, you know, we have to get ready for something else. But in a lot of other areas, if you look in the creative industry, people have this attitude of, I can do this till I drop. And some of them do, but actually a lot of them drop a lot earlier than, than they think they are. You know, they, there's this, this thing going around in, in music, for example, that they say, oh, you know, a lot of people break when they're 27. Now, I'm not aware of any hard research that's been done on this, but it does look like it's before they're, they're 30 years old that a lot of them seem to have such a struggles and so they, they, a lot of them do drop out. And there's that 27 group, isn't there? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah everyone, yeah, 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 yeah. I and if among others. But there must be, you know, I know it's anecdotal, but there might be some truth to that, you know, when people get to that certain stage in their life that they think, all right, now I need to really have a career. How am I going to set up my life? Do you think people should be taught earlier on then, especially these creative types, all these yeah. athletes, mm. to be able to deal mm. with the stresses that they're going to have Absolutely, put on them? absolutely. And this is, there's actually surprisingly a, a lot of a literature and talent development on this, that, you know, these transitions have to be anticipated and they have to be trained for in advance. And there is literature that has already investigated this, you know, these life uh, transitions. So one of them, one major transition is usually around the ages of 12, you know, around when people go to secondary school. Mm. Um, that's a huge shift for anyone. And especially for people who go to specialist secondary schools because they want to go into sports academies or they want to go into specialist music schools and so on. So that's a huge transition for them. And then there is a major one when they're around 18, you know, when you, you, you get into the, the senior and the... the well, yeah, into the yeah, real world. Basically. Yeah. And then there is the one post-training. 
Um, so depending on the field you're in, I think there are you know slight differences, but we can't deny that those stages in career transition, they hit people really hard. Whether you're an athlete or whether you're a musician, there will be some differences. For example, if you look at ballet dancers, they tend to be a bit earlier because they already get picked up when they're around 16, you know, by, by the big company. So yeah. everything for them tends to happen a bit earlier. But you still have the same transition. So we still know, all right, when you're going to qualify for, for the specialist training you want to do when you're around 10 to 13, you're going to have quite a big knock. You know, a bit like children who go to boarding school. That's a huge thing for them. You know, a lot of them are traumatized for life by having been to boarding school when they were 10 years old. And we know that you can prepare for this. The way to do it is to anticipate the kind of t challenges that you're going to have. And to put actually to put little challenges in place. So sometimes parents think that, oh, there's a transition coming up. You know, we're going to pamper them. And we're going to be super positive, And we're going to be like, oh, you, you can do this. You're going to be great. But actually, you're risking that once the bubble bursts, that they're going to have an even bigger hit because, you know, they, they weren't really properly prepared. So there is no resilience that has been prepared for. Well, have you got some methods that yeah. people should use then? Definitely. So if you know that there are transitions like these coming up, the first thing you can do is think about what kind of issues are they going to be faced with. So let's take a really general example of the boarding school. And I'm going to take this because I've had so many people traumatized by going to boarding school at such a young age. And they always say the same things, you know, look, you're away from your friends in a completely new environment, have to do everything by myself. Mommy and daddy aren't there anymore. Um, there's lots of shouting, there's lots of bullying, you know, a very big, big life change. Now, you can dissect that situation and think, all right, what are the skills that he's going to need? So let, let's take hypothetical. Most of the people I know are boys, you know, <laughs> who went to boarding school, so I'm going to say he. Um, but in hindsight, when I asked them, I said, how do you think you could have been prepared for this? Uh, very simple things come up like, well, at least I would have liked to have gone on a, a summer camp for a week to see if I could, you know, make it on my own. And then, water, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So very small things that you put in their way intentionally, you know, they're going to be challenged. They're not going to break. So something like um, this is actually also a good one that you could say, oh, do you want to go and stay with grandma and grandpa for two days? They've never done that before. All right. It's fun. It's grandma and grandpa, but still oh, mommy and daddy aren't going to be here. So that could be just, you know, I'm just making this up now, but it it's a potential uh, way that you could work around it. So you, you go and see grandma and grandpa one weekend and you talk to them. How did it go? You know, how did you find it? So what did you do by yourself? And then what did you feel, you know, you could do when mommy and daddy were not there? So it's, it's, it's what's called like a scaffolding process. So you put in obstacles. They're not big enough to break them, but they will challenge them. And you progressively make them harder and harder. Now, important thing is you don't just throw the kids into it. You yeah. do have to anticipate. You do have to think, you know, who is this child? What's her or his personality like? Because if they're highly anxious and they're going to be traumatized by having a weekend with, with grandma and grandpa that they don't know well, then that's potentially going to break them. So, Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Does, it, uh, does, does that translate mm -hmm. to sort of later in life then if yes. you know that you've got a transition coming up mm. say uh, one of these sports mm -hmm. stars mm -hmm. and they know that they're coming to the end of their career mm -hmm. they need to move on to something else maybe dip the toe in the water of doing some commentary work or... exactly yeah no that's really well said that's exactly how it is yeah a very healthy um way of, of trying to do it and to sort of um have um 
how they, they used to have a word for this. I forget it now. But that you have a, sort of a secondary career almost, not mm. necessarily a career, but something to fall back on. And this is this is a healthy thing to have because if you put all your eggs into one basket and something doesn't go right in your career, that makes coping really difficult. I think a lot of people so, might not make it if they mm. didn't put that 100% in. When you're talking, yeah. you know, the, the mm. real mm. high achievers mm-hmm. in the, say, the classical music mm. yeah. game, if they, they've they put all that effort mm. into it, if they only put 90% of that effort into yeah. it, they might not have made it as far as they've got. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. might be a hard balance to that, find there. That's a good, that's a really good comment, actually. I think a lot of people would agree. But um, when I say, you know, secondary you know, career, I shouldn't have said career maybe, but just a secondary activity. It is really healthy to have this though, because even, for example, if you're an elite classical musician, to just go for, I don't know, a regular walk once in a while, that could be a secondary activity. Or to have, you know, some sports that you like to do, or to have another hobby. Because mm-hmm. what is dangerous is that in these environments, they genuinely often do not do anything else. So I know people who would lock themselves up in training and practice rooms eight hours a day, rarely spoke to anyone, social skills, you know, down the drain. And this, nobody said that this was an issue. You know, we were actually, we were free to go and do this because we all thought, oh, look at him, you know, never talks to anybody, never goes out, always practicing. He's going to be the best. And they're not because this is dangerous, A, for injury, also for your psychological development, but, and your social skills. It's all about social skills. You have to know the right people. How are you going to do this? So in that sense, um, I remember I was talking to, was this a barrister, I think? Yeah. He, he was saying something very interesting. He said that he, it took him a really long time to learn that he needed an alternative hobby that he was really interested in. Because he said, if my legal career takes um, a hit, I need something to cope and it's a very good thing to have sort of two lanes. You know, it's sort of like an emergency lane where you have you have your, your your one thing that you give 100%, but actually because you have your emergency lane, maybe a hobby, maybe some exercise or something, you know, it could be friends, family, it actually makes it easier for you to, to maintain that 100%. Because I see what you mean. You know, you have to be 100%, but having an emergency lane enables you to be 100% rather than having, you know, two things running parallel. I can see how it would be comforting, having something to fall back on. It's funny how having that knowledge gives people a boost. And this is just one of the general rules of coping. You don't put all your eggs into one coping strategy because that's really risky. Because there's going to be situations wherein that coping strategy is going to fail. So let's say, for example, that you're someone who always... Let's say, this is actually quite common. If you're a problem-focused coper so you solve problems whenever there is an issue you sit down and you go what's the problem what am i going to do all right people who have this type of coping throughout their life they typically struggle when something happens that they cannot change so let's say your sister dies problem focused coping huge issue because they cannot solve death and i know of cases of people who literally just lost their mind you know they just thought what else can i do because that's all they've ever done to solve a problem. So you need that flexibility as well, where you think, you know, all right, this is a this is a situation where I'm going to go for a walk, talk to some friends, clear my head, or this is a situation where I'm going to try and solve a problem. Am I going to take care of my feelings now, or am I going to try and, and get something done? So it's that flexibility and coping that you need, because when you go on to any demanding career or anything in life that you want to do, new 
challenges are going to find you and they're going to knock you off course. I'm interested where people mm-hmm. miss out on that in their childhood then. Is that, what well, is it childhood or is mm-hmm. it later in life that you should learn this? At what, what point should we start teaching people mm-hmm. how to cope in different ways? You can learn this throughout life. So the brain is always malleable. The brain never stops learning. It's just when you're younger, it's more malleable, more easily. That doesn't mean that your people stop learning, especially not if you take care of your diet and you exercise a lot. You know, people's brains really stay stay quite young and, and, and um, responsive to things. Of course, it can make you more robust if you learn it earlier on because you will meet challenges at an earlier stage in a more positive way. Mm. But personally, I don't think that you have to. I mean, I my coping skills were zero until I was about 23. I learned... All my coping, I think, honestly, I mean, if I had to put a percentage, I think I learned 85% of my coping skills at the age of 23. Is that part of why you got into this area? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I saw so many friends break at conservatoire. And I mean, when I say break, I mean seriously break. You know, not just drop out, but, you know, get career-ending injuries. I know two people who actually left and had to go into psychiatric care and things like that. So it was very tough on me. I mean, I didn't break by those standards, but I did get really stressed out and, and, and really ill at one point. You know, I felt so extremely overwhelmed. I couldn't sleep anymore. And that's when it really hit me. I thought, I do not have the coping skills to deal with this type of a career. I just didn't have it, didn't have the background. And I had to teach myself. And then when I saw that it was possible, I thought, there is definitely something in here. So we can do it with children. Sometimes people say, oh, children are too simple to understand sports psychology and performance psychology. But you can, I've seen amazing uh, psychologists translate this into very simple things, you know, very simple tr- uh, tips and tricks. And, and like the example that I was using with, with grandma and grandpa, you know, just a weekend away without mommy and daddy. You can do it in, in very small, subtle ways, but it still impacts their development. So ideally, yes, as young as possible. But we can do it throughout life at any stage. Just tweak it. Do you think you're one of the rare, rare ones that actually thought about this mm. as it was happening? I think that's just the human fallacy in a way, isn't it? I mean, we, we don't make a step forward until we get hit. We just, we don't, humans don't do prevention. I don't care what anybody mm. says. I'm not convinced that any human does prevention unless they've got a real reason to fear that something bad's going to happen. Because we just let things, you know, sort of roll. And then when something really bad happens, we think, okay, okay well, I'm going to get my act together now. Yeah. Um, this kind of touches on one thing that I wanted to ask yeah, you, actually. Go. We all make ourselves promises and mm-hmm. we make ourselves, for example, uh, New Year's resolutions. Mm-hmm. We, we know for a fact that what we've promised ourselves that mm-hmm. we'll do, mm-hmm. let's call it exercise, yes. is going to make us feel better. Yep. We're going to feel healthier. Mm-hmm. We're going to get more out of life because of it. And... 99% of us don't do really yeah. exactly what we mm-hmm. told ourselves that we would do. What's what's the factor there that's stopping us? Well, stopping us achieving mm-hmm. what we the goal that we set for ourselves. Yeah. It's almost like facts isn't enough. Yeah, or- absolutely not. I think the number one thing there is just a very profound misunderstanding of how the human mind works. Because it's a habitual pattern that we're trying to break. And we are silly enough to think that we're going to do that overnight. And it isn't. I mean, if you look at human biology, psychology, neuroscience, everything, we form habits. And habits are really efficient. They are efficient for the brain. Once a habit is formed, it takes less and less energy to keep it going. And we're sort of going on autopilot. Now, 
it may seem to us as if we can stop our behaviors just because we choose to now, mm. but you're actually going against a very well embedded way of being that you've just taught your mind to do. You're not going to change that overnight. And one of the things that people uh, forget is changing a habit is not necessarily long term, but it takes a couple of months to really change a habit. And the other thing, I mean, when it comes to New Year's resolutions, I remember that uh, this was a thing in, in the powerlifter community because I was, I was, I was, uh, I was really into powerlifting at one point. Really? And yeah, yeah, oh, I loved it. It helped me so much psychologically. And um, tell me was, about that in a minute. Yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> let's uh, let's hold on to that one. But there was this really amazing powerlifter, and uh, she said something that really stuck with me because. In these sports environments, they also do New Year's resolutions. And people think, you know, oh, they don't need to do that. They're always exercising. They're always watching their diet. They're always on track. But no, you know, everybody has something that they want to improve on. But because they're so used to training and having these long-term projects, they actually started preparing for their New Year's resolutions in October. Yeah, and that, I mean, it seems like with all the psychology I knew, it still struck me. I thought, of course, of course, because September, October, November... Yeah, it's going to work because you do all the preparation. And then when New Year's Day comes, you can do that last little bit that you had to do. And you do make that progress because you have that, you need that preparation. And I think the important thing with, uh, with that community at the time was because they feel how important automaticity is. It's very important to have a skill embedded that you can do it automatically. And they know it's going to take many months before you're going to change a movement and do it differently automatically. I can see you like you're doing the clean. Yeah, I mean, this is just, well, the people who are listening won't won't be able to see this, unfortunately. But, um, you know, so that that would be one example. Um, But with anything in life, just because changing your brain, changing a a habitual pattern is going to take months. So if you want your New Year's resolutions to work, you're going to have to start around October, November. That's it does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> how, how can you start changing a changing a habit then? Have mm. you got any tips for anyone yeah. listening? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite ones is you need to know what's going on. Uh, a lot of the times people, because it's non-conscious, it's not happening consciously, we don't know what the habit really is and why it's happening and what's triggering the habit. So the first thing that I would do is to just make a breakdown for yourself when the thing that you don't want is happening so if we take a really really common one procrastination a lot of people will say i don't want to procrastinate i hate myself when i do this why am i doing this if you just write down when it's happening where it's happening what time it is who you're with what kind of environment you are and you just look for the trigger and it can be something as simple as um, maybe it's the room you're in, maybe it's the people you're around, maybe it's the time of day. But you change one of those little aspects. And that's actually quite an easy, easy change to make. So it's easy to take your laptop down to a cafe around the, the corner and see if you can work there. And a lot of the time people do. You know, it's something as small as changing the environment that takes them out of their usual hab- habitual loop, really. If you change something in the loop, you interrupt the loop. But it's it's often so simple that we don't see it. Yeah. Um, so identify what the trigger is. So that's a process of elimination. Uh, the other one that I really like is to just track what you're actually doing. Because the, the process of change always works the same way. You need to know what's going on, where do you want to get to, and then we work out how we're going to do that. A lot of people just don't know what's going on now. If you don't know what's triggering the behavior that you don't want, and you don't know what you're actually doing right now in terms of, you know, how are you managing your time? 
How much time are you spending daydreaming every day? How much time are you spending on Facebook every day? Exactly. Not, you know, more probably three hours. So the tracking is something I really like. I do this when I, I start procrastinating and it starts to get out of control. So I'll just track from the moment I wake up everything that I do. So you literally keep a yeah, yeah, just a log not of yeah, not on your phone. It does not work when you do this on your phone. Uh, just you know, like I have a little diary, and uh, when I wake, I put it next to my bed, and then when I wake up, I will write down. I look at the clock. I'll write down. You know, it's seven. That's all. Woke up. That's. All. I'm free to go and snooze. I can do whatever I want. I just have to write down what I'm doing. And um, in my experience, actually, people, A, stop procrastinating just because they're tracking what they're doing and they can actually see how terrible it's looking. Yeah. <laughs> That's one. You're creating decision points, which, you know, behavioral uh, economics and behavioral sciences, they like that. That also stops uh, a habit in its tracks. So simply because you've, you've written it down, yeah. procrastinating, yeah. Yeah. 25 yeah. minutes, exactly. 7.20. Yeah. Oh, better stop procrastinating. Yeah. Just because, you know, you are interrupting the loop by taking that little notebooklet instead of, you know, carrying on with your habit. There's actually some really interesting research in this. For example, they looked at gambling and they, they gave people gambling vouchers, I think. And if they put them in separate envelopes, people gamble less. And you'd think, you know, it's just an envelope. Why are you gambling less when we put them in separate envelopes, but you gamble more when we put them into one? And so they would say, oh, it's because every time you open an envelope, you're stopping, you know, you're sort of stopping yourself in your track because you have to open no, the envelope. You do, yeah. yeah. So that, that's what they would call a decision point. But it does help to put these obstacles. They're tiny obstacles. You know, we're so lazy. We're so lazy that it's beyond us <laughs> to open an envelope. <laughs> but, you know, you can, you can make it work. Um, yeah, so that's what I would say. Triggers and tracking. And then you can start to see how can I make an objective, realistic change? Because if you're on Facebook four hours a day, you're not going to be on Facebook 20 minutes tomorrow. It's just not going to work. But if you want to be 20 minutes in three months, I think that can work. I think we want to go cold turkey. Same thing with New Year's <laughs> resolutions, you know? Oh, this is the new me. <laughs> No, Doesn't no, work no, 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 no. And it's just disappointing. I mean, we just disappoint ourselves because if anything, I think these types of New Year's resolutions, they work against us because we start to see ourselves as failures. It's biologically just not the way that you change um, a habit and a behavior. It takes time. Yeah, it seems like if I go back to the example mm -hmm. of uh, exercising for mm -hmm. New Year, mm -hmm. it seems like you need to learn how to enjoy doing that mm -hmm. rather than just making yourself do it because mm -hmm. some days you'll wake up and you'll have the motivation mm -hmm. and the excitement to you know put your gym stuff on yeah, and yeah. take the bus 20 minutes into mm -hmm. town or yeah. whatever it may be but other days when that feels like such a hard task and you've lost mm -hmm. that motivation yeah. you end up not doing it and then mm -hmm. you'll end up telling yourself yeah. that oh you're a failure yeah. for not doing yeah. it so yeah. it needs to be something that you look forward to and enjoy yeah. That's definitely really, really good to get it, you know, to kickstart the process. So in terms of if we, if we stick with the New Year's resolutions, for example, just like what I was saying about the kids to boarding school, if you wonder, you know, what does this change require of me? If I want to be, you know, a Hulk in 2019, I need to get to the gym in January. All right, what does it require for me to get to the gym in the mornings? And it's that that people miss out, you know, does it require me to go to bed earlier? Does it require me to manage my time differently? Does it require me to have some conversations with the people I live with that I'm going to be out of the house at 6 a.m.? And so on. You know, it's all these things. All the preparation should go into 
facilitating and enabling that change to happen. But we forget about those things. So we want to do all of that, you know, 1st of January. Woohoo, here we go. No, it's, it's definitely not going to happen that way. And the other thing I'd like to mention on the topic of motivation is we end up, like you su- suggested, you know, we end up demotivating ourselves because it's so such an unrealistic goal to achieve. And this is a big no-no in any talent development. If you make a goal impossible to achieve or unrealistic, that's going to be very demoralizing. So on the topic of motivation, motivation comes and goes. So it's a very uh, unreliable feeling, let's say. Because even if, even at top level, I can guarantee you people don't feel motivated all the time, but they do turn it into a habit because they know I'm motivated to, you know, achieve this thing. And in order to achieve it, I know I need to put in this and this and this this amount of work, which I don't feel like doing, but I know it's got to happen. Sometimes I feel like doing it, but sometimes I don't. So how are we going to prepare for the times when you don't? And when you work really hard, let me tell you, you most of the time not going to look forward to it because it's... It's a grind, you know? So how are we going to create a habit that is going to allow you to get on with it even though you don't really feel like doing it? And that's the thing with motivation. I think motivation is a very dangerous word that we use very easily. We sort of throw it around and we say, oh, you know, I'm not motivated to do that. Well, really what we're saying is, I don't feel like doing that right now. And change is hard for any human. So if you're lying on on the couch watching Netflix, it's hard to get up and do work. But also, if you're really in the flow of things and you're working and everything is going really good and your your friend comes in and says, hey, do you want to go watch Netflix? It's hard to stop. I have to think um, of Newton, you know, when he said um, objects in motion like to stay in motion. Mm. I, you know, it's it's almost like that. One, it's easy to keep doing what you're doing. That's just, that's just really what it is for humans. It's switching between these states that we find extremely difficult and we have to prepare for that. We have to really think, how are we going to make, make that, that, that change? So I'd say to people, forget about motivation. Don't wait until you're motivated. You just need to think, what do I need in order for this to happen? And then I'm going to work on the habit. Because once you have the habit, you're actually going to crave the exercise. So when you were getting into powerlifting, mm. if we bring it back to Yeah, that, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> what was it that made you initially get into it? And then how did you... Uh, how did you keep motivated? Mm. Because I'm sure there, there must have been oh. days where you got up in the morning and thought, nope, don't want to go to the gym today. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, in, in my case, it was actually quite um, interesting. So in my second year at conservatoire, so this would be the equivalent of university for most people, um, this is, by the way, the red alarm phase for psychological issues, the second year of university. Not the first, it's usually the second year when everything really culminates. So I had that. I had a really, really tough start of the second year, like so many other people did. And um, I'm not sure what it really was. We never found out. But there was one night when I suddenly started shaking really badly. And uh, I just I felt really bad. I felt really overwhelmed. And uh, the building, you know, the bu- building manager had to call an ambulance because you know, she said, you know, maybe you're having a stroke. Maybe you're having something. We never found out what it was. You know, I did a lot of reading and I think I genuinely think it was a panic attack. I think it was a really hard panic attack, and that absolutely frightened it frightened the hell out of me. What was the final trigger that brought the panic attack on? You see, that's the thing. It's usually a culmination of things. It's not just one little thing. You know, there's a difference between people having, you know, what they, a lot of people like to use the word panic attack, but clinically, they probably did not have a real panic attack. Like, if you have a real one, 
it's it's a very overwhelming feeling that just suddenly happens and it's not always tied to a particular cause so i know i was stressed about so many things so many things you know am i, am I going to you make the cut am i going to get to that competition am i going to pay the rent you know all these things so it's hard to t- you know pin down one thing so you were constantly questioning yourself full of negative thoughts and ideas Everything was negative and the environment was also very negative because they believed in breaking people down, right. not in developing them. So you would work, 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 and someone would say, well, not enough character. <laughs> That's just it. So very demoralizing. You're watching people drop left and right. You know, people just were not motivated or enjoying it at all. It was just a grind. And that really frightened me, that episode. I'm, I'm going to assume it was a panic attack because we never found out what it really was. Um, and I was terrified of having another one. I just thought, you know, what if this happens in the street? What if this happens? And I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I thought that can never happen to me again. And I really, I was so frightened, you know, before that happened, I used to just sleep whenever I felt like it. I used to drink a lot. I used to eat junk food. I really had to sort myself out. But we didn't know what it was. I went to doctors, went to hospitals and I thought, okay, you know, <laughs> time to, time to get my act together. And one of the things that I was really struggling with at the time was there were a lot of eating disorders as well. So in these performance environments, people are so concerned with how they look. Um, There was a lot of talk of, you know, girls not eating, you know, purging and all that sort of stuff. And and this environment sounds so terrible. Yeah, it it was it was really tough. I mean, from the outside, you're just like, oh, isn't that lovely? They're playing a piece of music. But (laughs) it was it was really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember I'd always, you know, been very self-conscious of my weight and my looks. And it doesn't help to be in this kind of environment where people are really judging you for how you look. But. Uh, in my first year, I remember I was also sharing with a lot of girls who were very self-conscious of their body. And, you know, they, they were displaying some, not necessarily eating disorders, but definitely disordered eating patterns. Definitely. And I think I sort of, not intentionally, but I started copying it. Because, you know, when you live with people, these things just sort of, we do yeah. that. We copy each other's behaviors without realizing. We sort of synchronize our our vices <laughs> with each other. And um, so that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was a really tough one. And I remember with powerlifting, I had this fear of traveling suddenly because I thought, what if another panic attack happens when I have to travel? You know, what, what happens if I do something really stupid? What happens if, if I suddenly, I don't know, faint when I try to lift my luggage? And that's why I thought, you know, I'm going to have to train my body to be stronger just so I didn't have to think of, oh, what's going to happen if, you know, this, what if, what if I faint when I have to help someone with their luggage, that sort of thing. So I wanted to be stronger. And then the interesting thing was that powerlifting specifically is a very interesting culture. You see, this is where I think it's so important to look at the culture surrounding a place to, to, to facilitate change. If you look at figure competitors, bodybuilders or sports that have to make weight, you find a lot of obsession with weight because they have to look a certain way to, to compete and to be yeah. what they need to be. Powerlifters just want strength. They don't care how they look. And that was just extraordinary. I mean, there were, there were these women there, very big, very strong, and they would have this family pack of Oreos after training. <laughs> They didn't care at all. Didn't matter. didn't matter. They just said, I'll go home. I'll have a decent meal. You know, just yeah, I felt like having it. So I had a pack of Oreos. And the thing was, you know, they trained so hard. They looked really good. You know, they looked muscular 
with a bit of fat on top, of course, because they didn't care how they looked like, but they looked really healthy. And I think that was the, the main thing that did it for me, that I thought, look, you can work hard, you can be strong, and you can also just not worry about how you look. You know, it can be about your output. And that, I think, really stood apart from the obsession with looks that I saw in, in, in other sports and music as well. And I really think that, that that's really what helped me psychologically. You know, also with the, with the eating, I have never had any even remotely disordered eating patterns ever since. I felt psychologically stronger, physically stronger. My, and actually, my playing improved. Nobody believes this when I say this in music, but they it actually physically improved from, you know, being stronger. I suppose it's like what you were yeah. saying before about putting 100% in somewhere yeah. and having your, yeah. your backup yeah. line. Yeah, and that's really how I experienced it. And I had a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, you're dropping out of music. And I said to them, no, I'm, like, I'm honestly saying to you, this powerlifting stuff is really helping me. Now, I couldn't take it to the extreme because if I thought I'm going to do, you know, lift really, really, really heavy, then I couldn't do the practice anymore. So I couldn't take it very far, but I could do it a little bit as a hobby. Um, and what happened later on, for example, I had uh, friends who got injuries in their back from playing too much, you know, just uh, injuries in other areas of their back. They couldn't practice anymore. So that was one of the things that I didn't have anymore. So I didn't have any physical pain at all from practicing because, you know, my body was used to so much more strain. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that I really think, like, um, I think the performance psychology, my supervisor, I also had a really, really amazing supervisor, and the powerlifting, I think that's really what sort of saved the performance career in the end. Was that a big motivating factor for you, you know, for those days that you didn't really feel like going down to the gym? Well, the thing is, in my case, I was terrified, and fear is a great motivator. If you went to the doctor tomorrow and the doctor said to you, unless you go to the gym every day, you're going to die next month. We're all going to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> I promise you we're all going to the gym. And this is sort of human biology in a way, isn't it? I mean, we, the stakes need to be high and we need to be stressed enough to have quick change. We're, cap we're capable of quick change. We are, but stress needs to be quite high. That's the drawback. We don't tend to change rapidly unless there really, really is a good reason. And in my case, I always say I was really happy because, uh, I mean, fortunate because when something as scary as this happens, you will get your act together. So I didn't have to think, oh, am I motivated? Am I not? I just knew I have to do this because I, I definitely don't want that other horrible thing happening. That's the whole um, thing about having a near-death experience, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, People say it changes yeah. them for the better because they yeah. don't want to live the rest of their life and yeah. not achieve what they exactly, wanted to. Exactly, yeah. And there's this really wonderful area that I like so much, you know, post-traumatic growth. We all think, like, stay away from trauma, let's not challenge our children, let's not, you know, risk failure for ourselves. But it's post-traumatic growth that is just an ex it's a beautiful area of research. So many people I've met, and certainly in my own experience, that, you know, it's the greatest adversity that really knocks us into shape, because that's really what motivates us. Um, and we don't even have to try. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. And the, the times when I, I didn't want to go, see, the thing was, when you, when you turn it into a habit, you don't have to wonder about your motivation anymore because it's a habit. Your body is actually going to crave it. It's going to be weird not to go to the gym. And then you're sitting there one day going, oh, I feel really weird. I have to go to the gym tomorrow. So once that habit, habit's in place, you don't really have to wonder so much about, you know, how am I going to push and pull myself? But, you know, that's the other thing I'd like to add to it. Don't be afraid of stress. And don't be afraid of, you know, freaking yourself out a bit. 
to go and, and do something because fear is an, a great motivator. And uh, mm. same thing with deadlines. You know, why do we suddenly work two days before the deadline? Stress goes up, focus goes up. <laughs> There's a reason. The stakes are high and off you go. Yeah, I remember seeing a TED talk about that by Tim Urban. He calls himself a master procrastinator, which I think is brilliant. The talk was about his ability to cram six months worth of coursework into the last few days of the deadline. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you can do it strategically because I always hear these stories about, um, who was it? I think it was Steve Jobs, wasn't it, who said, I always intentionally procrastinate. But you can have a plan, you know, you can have a system in your head, you can know how to do it, and you can just wait until the fear kicks in to actually start using your time efficiently. What was his system like? I don't know. I remember, I remember someone telling me an anecdote about it, this. But I know he's, he's definitely mentioned quite, quite regularly with regard, one of the many people who strategically procrastinate. There's this book that's been written about it. Uh, what's it called? I forget the title. But there is one book on strategic procrastination. And it's all about it's something with loitering in the title, uh, like a guide to loitering and, and so on. But it can work. I know um, Edison used to daydream quite a lot, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he used to take it a little bit further and mm. actually fall asleep, but mm. uh, fall asleep holding something so that when he fell into a deeper yeah, sleep, he'd yeah, drop it. Yeah. And then he'd have all these ideas that yeah. he, in his half-waking, half-dreaming state. I heard that from Salvador Dali. I thought that he was the one who did that as well. So he probably got it from Edison then. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard that quite a lot of yeah, people do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's amazing. Can I ask you about how athletes handle pressure? If I give myself as an example, mm -hmm. I didn't play rugby at very high level, mm -hmm. but I used to kick at goal. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you might be kicking and the two points that you get might decide whether you win or lose the match. Mm -hmm. And you feel that, that pressure... I can't imagine what the pressure must be like when 60,000 people mm -hmm. are in the stadium and mm -hmm. it's absolutely silent. Um, how can you train people to deal with that environment? The number one thing that we're talking about in that kind of situation is how can you train your skill to perform when the stakes are that high? Mm. So whatever skill that is. So even if we're talking like something like a penalty shot, you only have one shot. It's very quick. It has to get right. Same thing like, you know, a weightlifter you only get one shot you have to get it right it's quick it has to be um sure. yeah it has to work one error that we make is we prepare a lot we practice a lot and even in, in the case of rugby you know whether it's elite or or just for fun we play a lot but if you look at what happens in the brain when pressure goes up put very simply the the, the flow of communication in the brain completely changes so one of the things for example if we're in rest I'm going to really oversimplify this. There's blood and activity. There's more blood and activity going to the frontal areas of, of the brain because we can be. There is no immediate threat. We can sit here, have a conversation. We can talk about abstract ideas. We can talk about um, informed decision making. We can talk about all those sorts of things. If suddenly stress goes up in the brain, the activity in those areas is reduced. It's not completely shut off, but it does reduce a bit. And there's more blood flow going straight into the motor cortex. Fight, flight, flee for your life. Sure. Now, that's very simplified, but this, this will, I think, um, help, help you think. If we have a skill that you've learned, and you're trying to execute that skill with brain A in, you know, sort of the, the, the weekly playing state you're in, and you try to execute that skill in with brain B, which is brain, you know, all the blood to the motor cortex, all by oh my God, what's going on? You know, reduced decision-making in the front. You're going to get what so many people say, oh my God, 
I felt like someone else was playing. That just wasn't me. I don't know what I was doing because I trained so hard and I just, I wasn't me. No, you're not. Because if you look at the brain, you weren't you. You weren't the you playing with that state of mind and that state of brain, quite literally. So the only way to bridge that gap is to artificially induce that level of pressure while you train. It's tough to do, but it's definitely possible. So one of the ways that you can do this is, this is one of my favorite strategies, actually. Um, It has different names, but I think in sports, the most commonly used term for it is combination training. So what they'll do is, for example, say you have a penalty shot and you uh, you have a footballer who says, every time I have to do this, I feel sick, I get a little bit of blurred vision. And my hands get really cold. Let's just say that as an example. Now, you've just been given a couple of symptoms that you know really distract this player. There are other things we can do to get these same symptoms and to try and distract him on purpose. So the cold hands, for example, you can put something cold in your hands, make your hands cold to distract yourself. You can get your heart rate up by, for example, doing lots of of, uh, jumping jacks and then doing that penalty shot straight away. Because you're not going to do it like that in, in the game. What you just need is you need the same level of pressure going on in your body and then to try and focus despite those distractions. So you can train till you drop. If you never experience that level of pressure in training, it's going to be very risky. And it's counterintuitive to do this, but actually when you think about it, it makes complete sense because you know the stakes are going to be high. You want to train with the state of mind and the state of brain that you're going to have when when, uh, tension is that high. So you you do whatever you can to artificially induce that level of stress. Can you use visualization techniques? You can, yeah, you can, but you would have to be very good. You that's the thing with if you want to use visualization to get your heart rate up and to get really, really, really stressed, you need to be able to do that. So visualization does have to be trained. Some people are better at it than others. Some people are very bad at it. They just think, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'd rather do a couple of press-ups to get my heart rate up and to get a bit dizzy than to invest all my time in this visualization that I'm just not good at. So it depends on the person. The only thing that I, I like about combination training is because they tend to, it tends to be quite physical. So they tend to be people who will, for example, just do 40 press-ups and then they'll go and do the penalty shot. Or um, you can have musicians who do the jumping jacks and then they play this really difficult bar that they're terrified of. So that's what you want. You you induce this state of, well, this physical state that's quite similar. A rush of adrenaline. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I I know someone who even tried doing it with caffeine. I mean, I would not recommend it, (laughs) doing it with caffeine. But yeah, whatever works to get you into that heightened state so that you can train in that state. And then the, also the number one reason, I mean, one of the number one reasons that skill breaks down under pressure is because of focus. All these things happen and your focus shifts. So once suddenly you get all these symptoms and you hear different things, you see different things, the entire experience is different when you're under very high stress. And the first thing to go is focus. So if you try the same task with a different dimension and a different type of focus, so if it goes from task focus to my hands are cold, you're going to screw it up, most likely. So if we if we reduce it to the basic building blocks, it's controlling focus um, when the stakes are really high and your brain is just sort of doing something else than what you did in training. 
Uh, it's one of these techniques, strangely enough, that people just don't think about. You know, we know about visualization and we know meditation and yoga, mm. but I don't think people have ever come across combination training. And it's just that, you know, you induce the situation, you induce the symptoms of the situation that you're going to be in and you train under those conditions. It's funny, I've, I've never heard of combination training before. No. I read about it the first time, I think, in 2011. The thing is, with performance psychology, we have so much mainstream junk that we just circulate. You know, it's all sort of relaxation and yoga and, you know, oh, find your inner self and all that sort of stuff. And you think there is so much literature that people are completely ignoring. One of the very simple ones, we have, we just talked about um, visualization. There's some literature that shows how are we supposed to visualize I mean, how do I know that I'm visualizing as I should for performance? How do I know I'm not just daydreaming? Very difficult. But there are actually studies that have looked at some of the aspects that need to be met in order to have visualization really work. So they, they go from, you know, incorporating an imagined, uh, imagined sense of smell to perspective. You know, am I looking at myself through the first person's perspective or am I viewing myself from the audience's perspective. Do I see myself doing this little trick as if I'm watching myself from far? Or am I in my mind doing it myself? Um, environment, you know, do I really know the environment that I'm, I'm going to be in? And so on. So there are all these, these factors that need to feed into having a good uh, you know, visualization preparation. And that's really taxing. Have you ever heard of Alex Honnold? Alex Honnold, I he's don't a, think He's so. a rock climber from America. Ah, no, I don't so think so. So he does this thing called free soloing, mm -hmm. which is climbing without any equipment. Oh, my God. Um, oh. So he's just got his shoes on and a chalk yeah. bag. Wow. And uh, he's absolutely crazy what he does. He does his preparation, but I saw a TED Talk of his recently about a recent free solo that he did. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the visualisation. He closes his eyes and puts his hand up and says, and I can feel the texture of the wall. That's it. That's, yeah. I think that's the sort yeah, of detail yeah, yeah. that you Absolutely. might need to get into. Yeah, no, that's, that's really amazing. I should, I'll, I'll note his name down because I'm going to look that up. That's really, yeah. that's exactly what it is. You want to use all your senses, um, but it's actually quite specific what you need to tune into in order to make it relevant for a performance you're going to do. You know, we can all daydream about, oh, you know, achieving that thing we want to do, but that's not visualization. That's just yeah. a daydream. And if you do it well, visualization is really taxing. It drains enormous amounts of, of, you know, brain power when you're really, really, really trying to think, what does it smell like? What does it feel like? You know, like the rock climber example. What is yeah. it? And the argument for that is, and there, there are various arguments, um, but one of them is that your body physically feels as if you've done it before. So you almost artificially create this this sense of familiarity and that takes the novelty out. And so it's yeah. easier to process what's happening. It almost feels like I've been here before. I've done this before. I can do it again. I read so, a book yeah. on dreaming and mm -hmm. in, in the book they, they said <clears throat> that that's how you learn because you experience mm -hmm. something in the mm -hmm. day and then during, I think it's during REM sleep, you mm -hmm. replay that over and over again mm -hmm. in, your, in your mind. Mm -hmm. And then the next time you come to do it, you might sit down and... For example, playing the piano, you might be able yeah, to play yeah, that yeah. piece better. Than Absolutely, it's there. yeah, yeah. So the term is um, overnight skill consolidation. So that really is a thing. It's not, um, you know, it's not something from BuzzFeed. Yeah. <laughs> it really is a thing. So what happens is, especially the effect seems to be even greater if you do it last thing before you go to sleep. Um, so you do something, you learn something, 
you go to sleep and the way that memory works is you have the encoding process first, which is when you're learning the stuff that, you know, has to go into memory. Then you have the consolidation, which is really sort of what's happening in the REM sleep. And then you have retrieval, which is when you go and do the skill and it comes all, you know, it comes back to you. And we know that sleep is really important for skill consolidation. It genuinely helps. And for memory, oh, I would say if someone says I want to memorize well, my number one thing would be sleep. Right. That's the, that's really the go-to thing, and I've never seen this anywhere as extremely as with memorized speeches and with music. If you had to do really long speeches, uh, you know, for actors or comedians, whatever, they will know if you haven't slept properly. Sometimes you just lose your train of thought. You just think, no way, how did this just happen? You know, so sleep is incredibly important for it to be sharp with memory. And I remember we used to have this thing in music with them. Um, I don't know if, if uh, you know, the music of Bach. Yeah. Oh, it's mental, mental. I mean, basically, musicians have this whole thing. It's incredibly complex music to memorize. To play, also very difficult, but it's the memorization. For some reason, there is such a complexity in this music that people are terrified of playing it from memory. Is, why is that? There are pieces that are theoretically more complex that are, I don't know, even even according to the instrument more complex. There's something about Bach's music that makes it very difficult to memorize. I don't know if anyone has cracked why, <laughs> but it's inc- it is complex music. But there is more complex stuff out there. You know, people have written stuff in the, in, the, the, in the 20th century that was absolutely crazy. And then we don't struggle so much with memorizing that stuff. But Bach, no, no, no. They've got this whole thing about Bach. In a way, it's very minimalistic. I mean, he doesn't do crazy stuff, but it's just so, I, I don't know, ingenious probably. <laughs> it is very difficult for all instruments that, that you know, I've, I've talked to. People really struggle with memorizing Bach. And then there's also the thing, of course, people are afraid of having a lapse because it is so difficult. But um, I always remember that when I had to play Bach from memory, I would sleep a lot. And, I, and in the beginning, I didn't realize that, you know, that was why I was having the lapses. But if I didn't sleep, <gasps> the concerts were terrible terrible and I never knew why I just thought it was the stress and then you know at a later stage when I realized this overnight skill consolidation thing how important it is I actually swapped my practice for sleep and it it was better I I wasn't as warmed up as I was but quality wise it was a better investment to actually go and sleep and you know you try selling this to the elite elite circuit they'll just say you're lazy but yeah it's so important yeah it really does yeah go to bed (laughs) All right. What did you play? Oh, yes. Uh, I played classical guitar and I played a bit of piano. I wasn't good enough to have a major in piano, apparently. Uh, and then, you know, you have to do all the other stuff. You have to do the music theory. You have to do some of the singing and you know, all the stuff that comes with it. Are you still yeah. involved in the music world? Sadly, actually quite marginally. Right. I still do, you know, I, I still see people when they come to me, uh, you know, for advice or musicians or I do talks and stuff. But I'm not performing myself anymore that's quite a bit, a bit sad, sad about that, yeah. yeah i mean it's one of these things you know you never really stop being a performer you know it's like people come out of the army you know they, they've been retired for 20 30 years and they still say to someone hi i'm a soldier you, know? yeah. <laughs> you just never stop and it's it's this whole identity thing that you know you spend so much time being something in your own head yeah, it never leaves you. It really never leaves you. And um, I, I, I still want to pick it up again. 
to the investment, you know, I would have to practice five hours a day again to even, you know, maintain that level that I had, which is just not possible with this job. I suppose you like it then when you get a uh, client that's a musician. Mm. I do. Yeah. I mean, it's um, for me, they are the easiest ones. I mean, because I know I tend to know their problems inside out. So in in that sense, they have left less explaining to do. Like if I had a, someone was saying to me um, a couple of, what was this, a year ago, a Formula One driver. And I really said, look, I don't even have a driver's license. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not going to start with this. But actually, then you find out that they come to you with a problem that has nothing to do with, you know, driving. It, it's just, they'll say, oh, you know, I just can't manage my time. I come home from training and my life is a total mess. I just need some time management coaching. So, um. In that sense, you never know. But with the musicians, I really know the environment very well. I'd say that's that's a plus. You know, same thing with the actors and the comedians. But it helps to know the environment, I think. And I think, because I never wanted to be the performance psychologist who just calls himself performance psychologist, and they don't know anything about any environment. Yeah. They do exist. And I mean, they must be really, really, really good at their job. But I don't think I could do it. I really need to understand what makes these people tick. Um, and you have differences. You really do. And I want to know. I think it's important to, to get a feeling for the, the cultural atmosphere. That it must be important to know what yeah. translates over as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. It? Exactly. And also, you know, the words you use, because you have to be really careful with that stuff. Because sometimes people just feel disrespected when you just go, oh, do you know what? We got this thing from sports. Yeah, let's do some periodization with you. And then they'll be a bit like, oh, I'm not an athlete. <laughs> you know, I don't want your stupid periodization strategy. Um, well, maybe they might have opened up to it had you not made it seem like you're just going to apply something from somewhere else. Mm. And in my experience, that's something that people really dislike, really dislike. I get that a lot from audiences. Also, when I'm in the audience myself and talking to people afterwards, They'll just say, well, how, how does this relate to, you know, me grinding away at an office? You know, how does... So I think you that sensitivity, um, I think that's very important for, for uptake and, and, and engagement, really, with people. A minute ago, you touched on speeches. Mm. And part of what I wanted to ask you about mm. that was, was the, the memory problem. Yeah. Because I feel like it's, it's something that most people... I feel most people mm -hmm. would... It would be a kind of a nightmare to stand in front yeah. of a, a large group of strangers mm -hmm. and speak about something, even something that they're quite knowledgeable about. Mm. What are the techniques that mm -hmm. you can implement to yeah. sort of mitigate the anxiety that they mm -hmm. might feel? Mm -hmm. The first thing there that I've seen a lot from experience is um, people don't prepare appropriately. They do prepare. Um, some of them don't prepare <laughs> properly. Um, But from the preparation that I have seen, I think a lot of people just go around in circles and do practice and preparation that's not really going to help them when it really matters. Um, so a bit of a backstory to this. So originally, before I went into music, I was actually very serious about acting. So we had to memorize tons and tons and tons of lines. Mm. And um, of course, memorization was a huge issue. But something that I didn't feel that much in the theater world was... People had to become the part that they were going to do. So it wasn't about, I am me and I'm going to present a task. It was, the task is for me to be somebody else. And I think that really helped with the amount of memorization we had to do. 
it really did help um, because we had a slightly different approach to it that we thought, even if I miss my line, if I know this character inside out, I can even improvise what he would do next or I can jump to the next thing. I can have real control because I'm going to be the character. Now just bear that in mind because this is relevant for, for, for the, 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 the thing about the speeches. The second thing is there is a difference between knowing what you're going to say and actually saying it in a flowing manner. So one thing that we forget with speeches is a lot of people write down their speech and then they memorize it and then they wonder why it feels weird. Spoken language and written language are not the same thing. So we don't speak the way we write and we also don't write the way we speak. Maybe when we text, but most of the time, no. And this was something I, I learned when um, I was dabbling in stand-up comedy. Um, they were actually teaching us Oh, this is your next thing, isn't it? I can tell in your face. It's like, oh, let's, let's make a little note. <laughs> but um, one, of, one of the things that all, all amateur comedians were struggling with was writing a piece of comedy that sounded natural. Because the jokes were good, but it didn't sound natural. And that was one of the first things that, I, that we all had to learn was write like you think and like you would speak. It's very difficult. And that's one of the reasons why we also just jam ourselves in presentations, because we're talking in a way that doesn't feel like us. We've written it in a way that's written English, that's written language. It, it doesn't feel right. It's not flowing for us as a speaker, let alone for the listener. Um, and the third thing, when it comes to memorization, people just don't memorize it well. It's really that. So we have three things. Being the person or being the message that you want to present. Really, you know, owning that message and understanding what am I trying to say and who am I. Then having it written out in spoken language and write it as you think it. You as a person with all the ums and the oohs and whatever. But it has to be thought language and spoken language. And then the third thing is if you want to memorize it this way, you need to have the right strategies. So... One of this is potentially the worst strategy you could have is memorize it from word number one, memorize word number two, word number three, and so on. Because what you get then in that scenario is you're trying to memorize it very consciously, and we don't talk that way. Because then it sounds like someone's just tried to memorize a book chapter and they're reading it out to you. Even sure. had you memorized it, it's still weird. It's not going to translate. It sounds wooden, wouldn't it? Yeah, and people just stood there going like, something's weird. You feel weird for saying it. They feel weird for listening to it because it's not spoken language. Um, so this is actually another technique from stand-up comedy. A lot of amateur comedians would write out their entire set word by word by word by word. But then when you looked at the more advanced people, they would either just have a couple of bullet points or, and this is uh, what I saw at, um, at a slightly more advanced level, was they would have drawings. And just weirdest draws, just, just like almost a collage, like a wriggly line here. Then, uh, you know, like a star and then just anything. But it was almost like, you know, a children's collage, but it means something to them. Right. And it's images. Images are processed much faster they, you know, you, you get the image straight away. You don't have to think of how was I going to say it. Yeah. You know what you're going to talk about and you intuitively talk about you that thing. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what, what creates that flow. So when it comes to memorizing huge chunks of text, the first thing that people have to think about is, you know, what are you trying to say? And how would you say it to me? So if I sat in front of you and you just explained to me what this speech is about and I recorded you, that would probably be the best speech. 
that would be the best one. But it's very difficult for us to, to work that way. So it's just, it's a working error. It's just like people who make the PowerPoint first and then they start telling you what's on the PowerPoint. No, no, no. You tell the story and the PowerPoint obeys the story. So it has to be the other way around for communication to work. Then number two, if you want a flowing presentation, it really does have to be practiced. And it has to be practiced in this way. So it has to be practiced with, I'm going to tell you how this is. I'm not going to memorize this word by word by word, but I'm actually going to practice a couple of times a day, maybe to an empty room, maybe to some friends, actually just telling this in my own language. Um, then there is one technique that you can try if you want to really take this to, uh, to the next level is you memorize it the way you're going to say it and you randomly get somebody to pinpoint a place in your talk or your presentation and you have to pick it up from there. Very difficult to do, but in order for this to work, you have to really know it inside out. So that's how you can test. Am I genuinely in control of this presentation or am I just trying to go from start to finish and let thought number one cue thought number two and so on? So this is a thing in, in, uh, when, when you're dealing with memorization. Um, a lot of the times when we do repetitive memorization, so if we have a repetitive piece of text, they say it again and again and again and again and again and again. If there is a glitch somewhere, you're going to lose it. If someone coughs or someone asks a question, typically people who've done this type of called rote memorization, they don't know where they are. So they have to go from a previous place and find where they were again. So it's, it's a very risky type of memorizing. And the other option you have is to actually know what is going on, to have a conscious memory for little bits in the speech. And then you work your way around it. There's one thing I'm going to add to this. Even if you had this perfectly memorized and rehearsed, in order to pull off the speech, you still have to make it work with who you are. Because you can say this in the most engaging language, but if you're standing there not acting like you or the part of you most suited to do this presentation, it seems disingenuous to people. So that's why I spoke about being an actor, because you really have to embody everything. So you first have to feel the message and really be the, you really have to act a speech. You genuinely do because no human likes to stand in front of people and do this. So you have to now be an actor. You have to act the part of a person who speaks in front of people and who likes doing this. And then you make it overlap with um, the way that you would speak and the way that you would um, do it. So the best strategy for that is get a friend Tell them what you're going to talk about and just record that and use that as a template to work from. Natural flow, natural uh, choice of words. Um, the other thing that you know, I've, I've noticed is that the amount of people who get really high-profile high jobs, let's say, that require presentation skills, they're not trained at all. You know, I'm really surprised, even in, in business and in finance, how little support there is given to do a very engaging presentation. Because I've seen some work from amazing people that I thought, I cannot believe this is you. You know, they're amazing when they're telling me about all their ideas and how they're going to do it. And you put them in front of the PowerPoint and they turn into this frightened, dull, disinterested, strange person. And I think, no, you have to act it. It's part of yeah. the, the fear or the anxiety, like we were talking about before, the footballer taking the penalty mm. kick. They need to put themselves into the environment yes. and into the yeah. mindset yeah. of yeah. Yeah. giving this presentation. Exactly, and that's what we typically don't do because it's not nice, right? It's not nice to practice and go, oh, 
doesn't feel right and you know you're talking to an empty room and you feel like a total idiot and you mm. think oh I'm not going to pull it off but it's exactly that resistance that you need to overcome it should feel bad you see that's the thing practice good practice does not feel nice it's not fun it really isn't it's hard work and uh, especially with presentations i mean the way that i pile on the pressure is they don't know this, but first of all, I ask them about their horror scenarios. Like, what is the, the, the most frightening thing that could happen to you? So I had, for example, a couple of years ago, um, a young barrister, really young lady, just starting out. And she just told me all the horror scenarios. She said, oh, the judge could say this. Oh, you know, and they could say that. And then the other lawyer could say this. And you get a lot of information of what makes them really terrified. Um, one of the things that I do is role play. And I try to make it really realistic to the point where they just go, oh, my God, you know, this really starts to feel very, very real. So you play it out. So you, you are their worst night. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, you have to know when to do this because, of course, if you do it too early on and they don't trust you and they're very fragile, then, then of course, it wouldn't work. But it's a great way of working to have, you know, this, this level of, 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 of role play going on where – in the beginning, it seems strange, but they do start to buy into it after a while if you really keep it up and then you, you keep throwing stuff at them. That's one. That's one way of doing it. And the other thing that I do with the memorization is I will randomly call out um, segments in the, the thing that they're supposed to memorize. And they just have to stand there until they know where to go from. And that is terrifying. One of the most terrifying yeah. things you can do is, you know, that silence when you're in front of someone. And you have to do something and you don't know what. And um, one of the most dominant things that you can actually do is to be comfortable with silence. Because it feels terrifying for everybody. Really, really terrifying for everyone. The audience finds it weird. The speaker finds it hell. Yeah. If you can get comfortable owning these silences, it's very authoritative and very... Do people get very used dominant. to that quite quickly? No. Do you need to experience you it need, you need to like almost some people sometimes actually I think I can get them nervous enough to do it in front of me, but uh, of course you know it's it's different when you're in front of a lot of people um, one thing for example that's that's very useful and i I still have to work on this as well is if you replaced your ums with silences very difficult because we get so used to saying uh uh if you say nothing, it's weird. But working that silence into it does give an, uh, an audience a feeling of, oh, yeah, they've really got this. You know, they can really do this. Same thing with uh, memory lapses, for example. I said, if you have a lapse, just look at the audience. And I'm not like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? But, you know, just that second of doing something that is so counterintuitive, because most people look at the floor or they, they just start, you know, start getting jittery. But if you do something that's so counterintuitive, it almost breaks the feedback loop. So if you look at a person when you know you've had a memory lapse, you're doing the complete opposite of what you feel. You know, you're being so dominant with a silence, so com completely calm, like, I got this. Most of the time, it actually helps them to retrieve what they were doing. There is another technique. This is also from stand-up comedy, actually. If people start heckling or they start eating in the front rows, if you slightly, very gently, without them uh, realizing, if you move closer to them, they tend to stop. There's nothing you really need to do. They're trying to intimidate you. But if you just move closer to them, which is the last thing on earth that you feel like doing when someone's heckling you because, you know, you want to just run away. But you're doing the opposite. So behaviorally, your body is going, whoa, why are we moving closer to the danger? Is it because we're confident? Is it because we can deal with this? 
And you start to feel more confident just because you moved a bit closer and now they're getting a bit intimidated. And what's the reason that they... Often they don't even realise it's happening, but it's, yeah, it works. It's extraordinary. Yeah, you, it's very subtle. So this is one technique that I use is uh, if you get a difficult question from someone, just very gently move towards the audience and see what it does to you because you'll feel more confident because it's not the thing that your body wants to do. Your body just wants to go backwards and away. Suddenly you go, oh, we never go forward unless we feel confident. You see, so if you can get the behavior in, usually, you know, the rest follows, the emotion follows and the thoughts follow as well. If you, if you take one line away <laughs> from this talk, if you are performing, if you have to deliver a task, it's not about how you feel, it's about getting the job done. If you go home and you want to deliberate over your talk or you want to talk to your friends and it's about you and your well-being, you can focus on your emotions all you like. But when there is a job to be done, emotions tend to be quite distracting. They don't really add much because we're all going to feel terrified. What's that church called that Tom Cruise is? Oh, yeah, Scientology. Scientology. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they do this thing where they have to just sit in silence, I think it's for four minutes, and just stare oh, yeah. into somebody's eyes. That process is just meant to get rid of the anxiety or the, the awkwardness. It just becomes normal. It just becomes something that you're used to doing. You don't mind staring into someone's eyes when there's a bit of silence. I could never get used to this. <laughs> I think that's just... So and do you know why I think it's weird? Because in nature, especially also with animals... I just stop doing it. <laughs> it's uh, it's challenging, you know. You, you there, there is something about it. There is a reason why we find this a bit intimidating. And if you look, for example, at puppies, you know, little dogs, when they do this, it's it's cue of, of challenging. And you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, let's say mother, <laughs> the mothers of the pups. They will typically, you know, just just paw away uh, at the face just to teach them. Look, don't look dogs in the eyes. And mothers who don't do this, you know, you get these puppies that get themselves into weird situations because they keep looking at other puppies and other dogs, and they keep challenging each other's behaviors. So I think with humans, it's quite similar. We just don't do this without there being either you know intimacy or some sort of challenging behavior i think you know it's a very powerful tool yeah when i was born i had a i had a squint eye and it was really i mean more squint than it's now it's still squint but i'm trying very hard to avoid eye contact so you don't <laughs> see it but that was something i started to do as a child so avoid eye contact avoid eye contact and i think a lot of people unconsciously do this also for other reasons anxiety and so on mm. it's really really difficult to start having eye contact with people Really tough, really, really tough. And I, I experienced just how absolutely threatening that can be. So let alone when you're doing a presentation. But as an audience, we just want to be acknowledged. And then we have to say, no matter how uncomfortable it is for you, you are going to acknowledge the audience. You are going to look them in the eye because it's about your message and it's about them. It's not about how you feel. So it's something I really had to learn. So I remember when I first did uh, my jokes in stand-up, I wasn't funny, by the way, but... I was funnier <laughs> when I did look at people, you know, because I would, I bombed so badly in the beginning. And if you look down when you deliver a punchline, your punchline doesn't come across. You have to, you have to sell it. You have to really sell it. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, if you, if you close the deal while you're looking down at the table while shaking somebody's hand, something's off. That's weird. We're not acknowledging people. So again, that's to do with the performance. You have to do what you need to do to deliver your message. You have to be who you need to be to deliver the message. 
and you have to do what the message requires from you. And then when the task is done, you can go home and do your yoga and, you know, think about your emotions and, and so on. <laughs> but not on the task. Is there anywhere online that mm -hmm. anyone can find your stand-up? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> no. If there is, you can't <laughs> And it's us. bad. It's bad. <laughs> it was so bad. I had this idea that I wanted to do character comedy. It was terrible. It was terrible. But it was a really good learning curve. And, you know, this was one of, one of the times in my life when I thought, I want to go back into, you know, working with actors and comedians. What am I doing talking to comedians about performance psychology if I've never done a type five? I'm, I'm one of those people. I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to have to experience what, what this is. And it is really, really good to do that because you just find out things that are so applicable to other areas you know for example in finance people try to put in a lot of jokes in their speeches and they don't work because they just don't know the rules of comedy you see so you can have the most amazing jokes and they will bomb if you don't know how to do the basics so i think there's a lot of things that we can take from different performance domains but in my personal experience it was just for me a learning curve i learned a lot of things that i can now use but i never went in uh, to, to be like you know a professional comedian because the work that goes into that is just insane yeah and you yeah. don't notice do you because when no. someone's doing it well no it just that's looks the like thing. they've got up there yeah, half yeah, yeah, drunk. Yeah, exactly i mean i always think that being a good comedian is like being a good spy you should just be absolutely transparent you know like nobody should see mm. anything that's going on it's crazy art form isn't yeah, it yeah but i think people should really try it because you learn so much from it you know you learn so much and the great thing about it is you get instant feedback If there's yeah. no laughter, you know you did something wrong. And that's why I think comedy, more than acting and music, gave me the opportunity to progress much more quickly. Because you knew instantly, did this work, did this not work? Why? It's good to try these, these different things and then to always think, you know, what is it that I've learned? What can I take away from this? I suppose, you, yeah, you don't need to rely on your friends to, to tell okay. you that you're funny. This is actually very interesting. Why is it that we're funny around our friends and then we screw up when we're on the stage telling the same jokes? And it's to do with persona, really, because when you're around your friends, you're a different side of you. You're showing a different side of you. And when you're up on stage, for people who don't know you, you're not one of their loved ones, there are different rules of engagement. They're really different because then it's all about first impressions. Your friends know you inside out. They know what to expect from you. You know what to expect from them. So we, we show a different side of ourselves and we have that atmosphere straight. We get it right. But when you're dealing with first impressions, this is so important for presentations as well. What kind of first impression do I give? Because I remember one of the courses I did, we were all unknown to each other. So there's an audience of people who don't know each other. And we had to just walk, walk to the front And everyone else had to just jot down their first impression of that person. So things like... Without saying anything, just yeah, walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just walk because it's enough. You only need a couple of milliseconds to start making up your mind about these things. And the amount of information that people assume just because they've seen you for a second, you know, from what job you have, age, of course, you, know, you have obvious things, but also stuff like, do you think this person would be a party animal? Do you think that this person would be married? Do you think that this person would have an office job? And so on, like lots and lots of assumptions that people make. And when this doesn't gel with your humor, we typically find it untrustworthy and we don't laugh. So you want to have that feeling that people instantly go, ah, I like this person. And that's so difficult. It's an act. 
And you've got to be able to tailor it to your audience yeah, if you're yeah, a comedian yeah, on stage yeah. or if you're absolutely, doing a presentation. Absolutely. A... I always said to people, it's not about being the funniest person. It's about can you make them willing to laugh? Can you make them willing to engage with you? And that applies across all areas of communication. You know, If my first impression is, wow, I, I have a good feeling about this, that's the opposite of, oh, my God, what a creep. It's it's really, really important that we get that right before any of the speech and the memorization, all that stuff comes in. So how do we come across without being aware of it? You know, what's the first impression people have of me? How can I show a very nice part of myself? Changing tack a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a, a phrase that I've heard banded around a little bit, mm -hmm. and it's imposter syndrome. Oh, gosh, yeah. So... Maybe you can just explain mm -hmm. a little bit what that is. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's very, unfortunately, a very common thing. Yeah. It's when people who are actually perfectly qualified to do what they're doing uh, feel that they just aren't qualified. They just feel like they are playing a part. They feel like someone's going to um, find them out, that they're a fraud. And I'd, um, recently I heard a neuroscientist talk about this who said that it disproportionately also affects professional women. I'm not sure if, if uh, you know how widespread that is. Um, Do I they think, say what the cause of that might be? Is it societal? Or? Yeah, that wasn't really clear. But you know, yeah, I think it affects everyone. I mean, I've, I've seen men and women with this. Um, it's just something to bear in mind. If it does disproportionately affect women, you know, that we maybe consider why that might be. You know, it could be like you say, societal or cultural. You know, I can imagine that you know a woman in business or a woman in the army might feel more readily because they feel like oh you know I don't belong in this environment or so on that in in my experience that I found is the people who suffer from it they're always the self-conscious intelligent ones you know it's never the overconfident ones who you know don't quite know what they don't know um I was going to ask that is there is there a word for the opposite it's, uh, I think they talk about Dunning-Kruger effect usually yeah when and that's where you know when, yeah. when you think you know more than you do exactly yeah the, the, typically the people who think they're great because they know so little. And that's the thing. If you don't know a lot, you don't right. know what there is to know. And if you're also overconfident, you'll do well. Well, obviously you do well in the world. You know, if you know a little bit and you're really confident of that little bit, people just, just get ahead. Where I found imposter syndrome, I have never seen this in anyone who wasn't qualified it's always the intelligent people it's always the hardest working ones it's always the ones who put the bar so high and who keep thinking of am i good enough because you see that's the thing the people who go out there and just do it they don't tend to think am i good enough they just think we're going to do it ironically it seems to affect the people who are least of all an imposter and the other thing i add to this is because uh, I, i remember i was i was preparing slides for imposter syndrome for a talk And uh, I don't have them now, but it's quite quite a nice effect. So I have a couple of biographies of professional imposters, all right? Like the real deal. So um, things like Frank DeMara. And uh, so, for example, uh, he's a guy who impostered his way through life, even into the U.S. military. And he even you know, performed uh, operations on people. And the soldiers thought, you know, he was a miracle doctor. He was not even qualified, didn't know what he was doing. So it's it's this amazing story. Um, if you look into yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And there's there there are more uh, examples of this because if you're interested, there is um, there's the film The Great Imposter, which is Frank Demara, I think. And um, there's also this book that's been written by Maria Konnikova, I think, who looks at imposters. 
Confidence, I think it's called. Yeah. But it's a really good book. It just sort of goes through all, all the imposters and, uh, through, throughout history and tells the stories. But if you look at what an imposter really is, so that's my point. These people are career imposters. Like, they know the tricks of the trade. You know, and they go to extreme lengths to get the thrill of the chase. And I always say to them, like, unless that's your CV, <laughs> yeah. don't even think, don't claim the title of imposter. All right. You need to be this good <laughs> to be an imposter. Otherwise, you're just a person who's critical and, and self-conscious. We're all winging it. We're all winging it. I'm feeling like an imposter right now. <laughs> Why so? Yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. I'm not the expert on all things performance psychology. I'm sure I must have set some things that would set some people off at some point who are listening to this. They'd go, oh, no, you know, I know a study that, that says that that's not true. There's always something you don't know. Do you see sure. what I mean? So, and I think... But you don't need to listen to those people. Yeah, and you don't have to be an expert on all things because we cannot be an expert on all things. You know, you can, you can do the best you can. But I can guarantee you I, f I feel it right now. <laughs> and yeah so I think a lot people. of people do that's why I brought it yeah, up I think a lot yeah. of people feel like that yeah. in at some point in their life if not most days mm -hmm. and it's always the self-conscious people who put the bar high for themselves that's the part that I find really um, unfortunate you know I think it's almost about you know even though you feel it even though you feel like an imposter just go and do it if you look at how personality works we're not just one person all the time because we show different parts of our personality in different contexts. You might as well be the person that you want to be, you know, play that part. Because we're never 100% one person, never. And especially when it comes to career, I, I always think um, that people have this idea that they need to feel confident. But if you wait until you feel confident, you're not going to get anything done. It's just a feeling, you know, it comes and goes. I suppose that confidence will grow through yeah. knowledge. Yeah, I remember um, a really interesting talk by uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's sort of, he's a, he's a Nobel Prize winner. He's done a lot of work in, 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 uh, in, in psychology and behavioral economics, and he's a, a very, very interesting guy. And uh, he's done some work in, uh, in confidence and overconfidence, you know, and decision making. And at one point, someone in the audience asked him about confidence. And he, he made a remark that I think a lot of people were shocked by. He said, well, what's confidence? He said, confidence is, is just a feeling. Oh, my God. Confidence is just a feeling? When you think about it, that's all it is. Yeah. You know, what is it? It's just a feeling you have. Do you feel confident? Yeah. Do you feel confident? No. Doesn't matter. You still have to get this thing done. So just like motivation, you know, I think confidence is something that we can enable, facilitate and so on. But we shouldn't be focusing on that feeling. When people come in and say mm. that they don't feel confident mm -hmm. very much, do you try and sort of instill techniques that would help them feel more confident mm. or just deal with the fact that they're not? I think clearing that emotional thing out of the way does help. Because that's usually something, when they present with this, it's because they think something's wrong with them. They think, I don't feel motivated and I don't feel confident. That means I have no, no options. They think they're broken or that they're not the way that they should be. So I like to clear that out of the way and say, look, you know, motivation comes and goes. Confidence is just a feeling. What we're going to do is, what's the thing you want to achieve? And then I can give you the strategies for you as a person to achieve these things. And then confidence grows naturally. 
But what I never want to do is, you know, just to focus on, on creating this feeling of confidence, because what you then also get is you can make people feel very confident, but they can still do a very crappy job. Right. And then you're not helping. It's, it's something I think where that we really struggle with as a society because we want to feel good. Yes, we do. But when there is a task to be done, and that's a delicate task, and that requires sensitivity and, 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 and training and all sorts of things, you have to be in, in, in service of the task, not just how you feel all the time. Are there takeaways that you want yeah. people to get mm -hmm. from this conversation? Yes. Um, first thing I would say is try to identify in your life what are the well-being things I'm going to do. So things to make me feel good. You know, things like friends, family, playing with animals, doing stuff for charity, um, taking care of your health, that sort of thing. And then identify the achievements that you want. And then know that actually they can be two different things in your life. And that when you need to have a career achievement or you need to go do something that really scares you, just those moments, it's all right to switch off and to just keep your eyes on the task and think, what do I need to do, regardless of how I feel? I'm going to get these things done and then I come home and I can start focusing on how I feel again and, and um, review my achievement. I think that's a very important thing for people to understand, that we are both well-being as well as achievement. To have a really fulfilled life, we need both. We want to achieve things, but we also, in order to do that, we need to take care of ourselves. And you need the right approaches for the right context. So if you go and do yoga at work, it's not necessarily going to give you a good presentation. It might, but not necessarily. If you do yoga at home and you know it makes you feel good, well, clearly, there you go. It's made you feel good. It's done what it's supposed to do. So I'd say to people, find out what makes you feel good and find out the things that you want to achieve. And then think of strategies that you can use to make yourself feel good, but also you know, to keep your, your focus on task and to just sometimes just push through the fear regardless of how it feels to get out of your comfort zone and, you know, be the person that you want to be, really. Yeah. Well, that's usually what it is, isn't it? I mean, we sort of just don't allow ourselves to be who we want to be. Yeah. So just, you know, get out of your own way. Good advice. <laughs> Thank you. That's so nice. Thank you. So there's one more thing that I yeah. want to ask you. Oh, please do, yeah. And I'm really interested in the future. Yes. Do you see um, any advancements mm -hmm. or any changes mm -hmm. in the future in your industry? thing is i find this a very niche and almost clandestine industry and i don't mean that in a sort of a bad way i mean it's so underground because of the confidentiality and i'm not sure how much would change of course you know we have to consider things like the coming of ai and more more digitized ways of working how is that going to affect you I think, for example, one thing, and this was one of the, the, the focuses in my, my thesis as well, is the way that AI is being used for uh, mental health care. So, and some of these apps, I've tried them, are actually quite good. You know, they're really good. You, you're talking to, to AI, it's not a real person, but they've been programmed in quite advanced ways to the point where I think, you know, why, why should I, if I have a problem, go and talk to, to a person? Um, there will be some issues, of course, where you would still need a person, but I can see that if that app use of these really advanced AI becomes more widespread, that maybe therapists, performance psychologists to a less, lesser extent, but I think therapists would, would probably see a, a decrease in use. Now, there are some people who say that's a good thing because then the NHS waiting lists would um, not have quite yeah, that long. People would get yeah, the better. Exactly. Yeah, essentially. yeah, essentially. 
I, I think there is a lot of great potential there. There, of course, it does worry a lot of people. You know, I'm I'm actually a proponent. I'm a tentative proponent of it because I've seen how good it can be. You know, personally, I just take out my app and I just talk to an AI, and it takes my focus off. You know, it distracts me for a bit. I can talk just to, to something that isn't going to judge me. It's quite nice. The other thing, apart from you know, obviously that people would turn to AI for for psychological help, uh, is digitization. So, for example, what I'm hearing now from people is that instead of attending a lecture or attending a training, they would prefer to just have a podcast or to have an online course or to, to view videos on YouTube. So I think everyone is sort of gradually moving towards making everything um, interactive and, and, and sort of digitized. Um, Do you see any problems with that? No, no. I'm just wondering if if it would help for performance psychology, you see? Because a lot of the things that I deal with are problems that have to do with people. And once you bring in that distance, they actually start to feel less less put on the spot. They feel more comfortable. And that is actually a problem. Because yeah. if they're going to have to be in front of people and you feel more confident talking to someone over Skype, you're actually going to make the problem worse for yourself. Because when that day comes with that horrible presentation that you're going to have to do in front of humans... You won't be ready. You won't be ready, and you might actually be ready even less. In that way, I think, you know, it's very helpful that I am a living, breathing thing that they can use as a tool to screw up in front of. But if you start to take that out of the equation, I wonder how much preparation um, is going to go lost. And also, you know, you can't, change biology you know society changes rapidly evolution does not yeah. so we're still going to be afraid of talking to people and uh, talking to a screen is not going to take your your fear of, of public speaking away so yeah that makes was, complete sense yeah yeah, yeah so um, i'm a proponent of it um, as long as it's you know used appropriately i would just i don't think performance psychology specifically is going to suffer much though but i think the field of, of therapy and i think that might actually take a hit Maybe even tutoring tuition because, you know, everything goes on, on, on YouTube. You think it might take a hit from the perspective of the therapist, but from the perspective of the patient, do you think that might be a positive? It really depends. I mean, if you're like me, and I did try therapy, and I was so disappointed in some of the practitioners. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, when I found a really good, well-developed app, I really went, well, that's much better. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, hands down, this is better. So if you're one of those people, of course it will help. But when I was doing my master's thesis, I did have to talk to a lot of, you know, um, I talked to other people who thought that it was quite uh, a very dehumanizing way of treating people. You know, almost they felt like, are we not worthy of being given human contact time? Yeah, maybe it's horses for courses. Yeah, exactly. Certain yeah, certain scenarios it would be good to see yeah. a human and others. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. Said, maybe less vital yeah. would be best mm. dealt with via an app. Yeah, but then you still have the issue of what if the person who doesn't have a big problem just wants to see a human? What if they just don't want to, you know, talk to AI? So that's still an ethical problem that you would have at all levels. But there's a huge ethical debate going on with AI and mental health care at the moment because you know who's regulating these apps? What about the data? Is it ethical? Is it? We just don't have the answer. <laughs> we don't. Also, we don't know who's liable. That's the other thing. Because you have, you know, for example, you have Facebook hosting Facebook Messenger, um, hosting an app essentially developed by a third party. Right. So let's say that you know you use an app and they haven't given you a consent form, they haven't shown you a privacy policy, they haven't shown you your, or guaranteed what's going to happen to your data. Is it encrypted? Is it not? And you go and do something to yourself. 
or the app gives you very strange advice because it doesn't quite understand what's going on. Who is liable? Because you have a whole chain now. Yeah, I think you so often it's... find at the moment that the courts are not keeping up with technology. No, 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 no. The, yeah. That's going to be a problem that has to be worked out in the near future, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think mental health care uh, as a whole is probably going to change a lot over the next 10 years, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Right, should we call yes, it there? Yes, please. Yeah, I could just keep talking. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. It's oh, been, bless you. That's so kind of you. Yeah, it's been great. I've learned a lot. and I think that uh, oh. a lot of people would have learned a lot as well listening oh, to this. Oh, you're very kind. Ellis Payson. If you want to get in touch with her, you can go to eclecticperformance.com or you can find her on Twitter at EP. You can also find me on Twitter at FascinatePod. And if you like that episode, give me a review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to a primate conservation expert. She lectures at Oxford Brookes University and has spent the best part of two decades in Southeast Asia carrying out research. She knows everything there is to know about gibbons. Then I'll be going to Wales and speaking to a couple who've just brought out their new book, Seven Pretty Simple Principles of Weight Loss. Thank you to my guest today, Ellis, and a thank you to Laura James for providing the music for this podcast from her song, Rooftops. Go check her out on Spotify. She's absolutely brilliant. And thank you so much for listening. You're really appreciated. And I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I do. Cheers, guys. See ya. See ya.